BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hi, this is Pia Baranchini, and welcome to Everything is the Best, the podcast where I get vulnerable and make others do it with me. The goal here is to deep dive into interesting people's journeys, finding common denominators, and hopefully making you feel not so alone. So let's laugh, let's cry, and let's get inspired to live our best lives. Hello, my darling. Welcome back to another episode. In July 2016, Anafi Wahid left her corporate job in New York City to campaign for Democratic Party candidates in New Hampshire. Walking door to door, she saw firsthand how even next door neighbors could be completely isolated from one another by the news they consume. In the months following the election, as talk of fake news and filter bubbles became commonplace, Anafi set out to create a shared news source in a world full of a billion news feeds. Fast forward, the flip side was born a free website, Instagram, and daily email subscription service that provides your daily digest of the best op-eds and analysis from liberal and conservative media. So every day you wake up, you open your email, and there's a fact-checked, detail-oriented breakdown of current events as viewed by the left and the right. It's brilliant. And Afi's op-eds have been published in the Wall Street Journal, The Hill, and USA Today. Her public appearances include everything from Fox & Friends, to the Young Turks, to academic panels and multiple podcasts. This is truly one of the most wonderful political conversations I've had in a very long time. And Afi is painfully intelligent, wildly informed and extremely graceful. Here's to hoping this inspires more dialogue and civil discourse without trying to kill each other. Hi. Hi, how are you? How's it going? I'm doing okay. Good. How are you? I'm good. I mean. Oh, you have a very cool mic. Very professional. Uh, Amazon. (laughs) (laughs) That's the way to do it. (laughs) It's just for Amazon. (laughs) Well, thank you for joining me. Yeah, you're welcome. So excited for this. I think it's going to be so important. Um, Is it Anna Fee or Anna Fi? Anna Jesus Christ. So neither one of them. How often do you get that all day long? All day long. No, um, one, no one can figure out Pia and it's three letters. So really? Do they say Pia? Pia? Yeah. Oh no. Have no clue how to spell it. And <laughs> <clears throat> Anafi. Sorry. Yes. There you go. <laughs> well, thank you so much for allowing us to talk about something that's been so important. And I want to um, <clears throat> bring up how beautiful I think organically this happened. I had kind of vented a little bit on my Instagram about the news and that I don't 
know what to listen to and what is everybody else listening to and do we just need to stick to NPR and how are we getting news that's not biased and how are we getting news that we're all looking at and multiple people sent me your Instagram oh that's so cool and I right away clicked on it and was like oh the flip side this is so smart and subscribed right away and I posted it on my Instagram and got so much positive feedback um, and so I was so happy when someone from your team said that you were willing to talk to me because I was like, this is great. This is exactly what we need right now. This is the information that we want to hear. So I would love to know how this started, why you launched the flip side. You just want to give us a little bit of background on yourself. Uh, Let's see. My background's really strange in in a good way. I've had a lot of different experiences and have worked in a lot of different places. So after college, I actually went into finance because, well, I'm a first-generation immigrant and I was not smart enough to go into medicine or law or tech. So finance... Uh, You have to be very intelligent to go into finance, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I was good with numbers. It was a natural talent. Mm -hmm. Um, So I said, okay, good enough. And I spent four years first at the FDIC as a bank regulator and then at Ernst & Young in consulting. But I, I was just unhappy. My heart wasn't in it. I didn't feel passionate about my work. And when you're working 80 hours a week, you really, really want to feel passionate about your work. Of course. But you can only get so excited about, you know, financial statements. So um, it was the summer (laughs) of 2016. It's true. It was the summer of 2016. And I had had friends who worked in the Obama campaign and had such an amazing time. And I thought, you know, I'm in my mid-20s. I don't have any responsibilities. I had even paid off my student debt. So I thought, okay, if not now, then when? So I went and quit my job and went to work for Hillary. I went to New Hampshire for four months, uh, spent those four months knocking on doors, recruiting volunteers. So I was a field organizer in the Manchester office, just doing the grassroots campaigning I'd always heard so much about and just wanted to experience. And it was incredible and exhilarating and exhausting and obviously ended in anguish. Um, Of course. So... You know, when I look back on that time, it was only four months, but it shaped so much of who I am now and how I think about the world. Um, Just getting out of the New York City bubble, getting out of the democratic bubble, the liberal, the, you know, sort of cosmopolitan bubble, just being there in New Hampshire, talking with the rural farmers, talking with people whose life experiences were just so different from mine. And then um, what inspired the flip side was that not only were the life experiences different, but also the media they were consuming is different, right? So even though I was living in New Hampshire in those four months, but I was still consuming CNN and reading New York Times and they were watching Fox News and reading Breitbart. So it still felt like we were living in different universes. Mm -hmm. And I thought, oh, this is why everybody's so angry. It just (laughs) all clicked, you know? It seems obvious, but you, you don't quite get it until you're faced with people who are just consuming completely different media and you, and you see what, what they're seeing and what they're reading and what they're hearing and everything makes so much more sense. And so when I got back from the campaign, I sort of, you know, had a whole, I guess you can say quarter life crisis was trying to figure out what to do. Started the flip side as a side project, had no idea it would become what it is today, honestly. Um, But I really wanted to create something that, average intelligent people can use to break out of their echo chambers, break out of their filter bubbles, right? Um, You mentioned that 
you were actively looking to get out of your bubble, but you just didn't know where to start. And that's true for so many people. I have friends ask me constantly, I'm trying to understand the conservative viewpoint, but I don't know where to start, right? And with the, you know, the good and bad news about the internet is anyone can write anything and publish any blog, which is great, right? Democratization is always good. No gatekeepers. It's a fantastic world we live in. At the same time, that means that we're also overwhelmed. There are literally millions of blogs out there. Who do you trust? Who do you read with such limited time? Um, we only have 24 hours in the day and we have day jobs and, you know, hobbies and families and friends. Um, how are we supposed to be able to consume it all? So that's what the Flipside team tries to do. We consume all of it and then give you the best nuggets in a five-minute digest each morning. For everyone who hasn't actually seen it, so it's a uh, fabulous Instagram, and then you go to the website and subscribe, and every day is a topic. I get an email in my inbox every morning that I read, and I read it out loud to my husband so he can understand. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and yesterday, I read that it to my adorable. mom. My mom has never been somebody who's overly consumed politics because my mom's like a very like nervous and like doesn't... It's, she's like, it's negative and I don't know what to do. And so, um, and now with everything that's going on, she has no clue. It's, she's such conservative friends who send her this bullshit in her email every day. And then she has me who's super liberal showing her Instagram <laughs> accounts and these other videos and she's right. super overwhelmed. <laughs> and so now she subscribes and it's great. So getting back to the point is you get an email with a topic and it says what the left thinks and what the right thinks. And, you know, uh, news sources on both sides, which is brilliant. And it's all in your email and you don't have to really dig through anything. I mean, logistically, how do you guys do that? Oh my gosh. We, so we have a, so my co-founder and I are working on it full time. And then we have a team of amazing contributors who spend hours every night. So every night there's a minimum of three or four people scanning the news. So once we pick a topic, we spend five, six, seven, eight hours reading everything on that topic so that we can make sure everything we're citing is, you know, legitimate. It's fact-checked. We can make sure that the studies they're citing are accurate, that they're not saying sort of misleading things. So we want to make sure that the person that's uh, doing the writing is a legitimate person, you know, affiliated with the institution or has a reputation for being credible, etc. So all of those things are happening in the background um, so that our readers can trust that what they're getting is quality information. That's the other thing, right? Because anyone can publish anything, especially on social media, you have a lot of fake information and misinformation. But even beyond the sort of blatantly fake information, things like the sky is green, right? There's misleading information mm -hmm. that, you know, takes a very tiny snapshot and creates, you know, a, a a whole conspiracy theory around it. So there's a nugget of truth sometimes, but the whole story isn't being told. So what or it's we're contextualized trying to do is, in a way that exactly. for the reader, right? Exactly. So we're trying to provide that that full spectrum, that full picture, instead of just the nuggets that each commentator or each media outlet is going to give you. I, I like have this like vision in my head of like all of you on your computers, like late at night, like you're in a new, like it's like exactly. the new modern day newsroom instead of being in like a printing. Exactly. Yeah. I remember taking a tour of the LA times in high school because I wanted to be a journalist. And I was like, gosh, these people are up like all night long. Like they're editing things until right before it goes to print. So it's amazing that you guys are able to do that now from your computer. <laughs> I have definitely hit the send button at 
5.59 a.m. and get sent at 6 a.m., especially when there's a debate. If the debate ends at 11 p.m., the commentaries come out at 1 a.m., at 2 a.m., and then we have to go and read them. Uh, But we love it. It really is a labor of love. Yeah, of course. Um, I essentially created a startup that just allowed me to do what I love, which is stay up late and read the news all day. So... (laughs) I'm, I'm honestly living the dream. <laughs> so I want to touch on uh, like the fake news problem. Sure. Um, and yes, so it's a huge problem. But, you know, there clearly are good journalists, but they're also working for, you know, various outlets that also have, of course, certain interests. And I know that a lot of people also too, like you cherry pick information like that. I think that's where obviously fake news becomes like for those of you who don't even like really like have thought about what that means. I really do think it just comes down to people contextualizing information in a way that's pleasing to certain groups. Right. I think that's where people get really irritated and they're like, wait, I said that, but now you made it look like this. And so it becomes very confusing. So can you give me like a couple examples of how we move on from that and how that's happened, et cetera? Sure. So earlier I mentioned that there's fake news as in that that type of extremely false information, right? The sky is green or, you know, um, the Pizzagate story where there was a fake news story about Hillary Clinton running a pornography ring or something. That's in the realm of just just false information and that should be fact-checked and nobody should believe it, etc. What exactly what you are talking about is when even good good faith journalists fall into certain traps. And, and I want to I want to speak up for those journalists. So a lot of the times they frankly are human and they live in cities and they mostly have friends who are liberals and they mostly live in echo chambers, right? If you live in New York City, chances are you won't understand what's going on in, you know, rural America. Tom in Illinois who owns a farm, yeah. Exactly. So when these media outlets that are located in New York and DC, and I'm aware I'm in New York myself, so I'm, you know, part of the problem. But (laughs) when we are writing stories, when we are reading stories, we come at it from our own experience. And it's really hard to think of all of the other counterpoints. When we talk about, say, cherry picking data. So when we talk about guns, for example, right, the left focuses on the deaths in this country uh, from guns compared to other countries, right? Americans, we own many more guns. We have many more mass shootings. All of that is true. But you know what? It's not even a but. It's just more additional information that gets left out. Mm -hmm. Um, The thing is, in other countries, yes, there are fewer massacres um, by AR-15s, but there are other kinds of tools terrorists use whether that's bombings, whether that's uh, a mm-hmm. knife, whether that's a machete, uh, whether that's ramming into cars. So when you contextualize in this broader context, you look at all of the different methods that terrorists use, right? Then our number of gun deaths looks less scary, looks less um, outlandish. And it's putting that additional context to say, okay, if you're comparing this specific mode of killing people, then yes, we are an outlier. But when you look at the number of mass killings in general, we are much less of an outlier. So that's the type of cherry picking of data that we look at. Or when you talk about, let's say, the climate tax change. reform bill. Climate change. Climate change. Okay. Because what we talked about, because when we talked about it on the phone the other day, I was mind blown by yes. 
by the Republican Democrats similarities right. and differences on climate change. Oh my gosh. So the, when Pete, we talk about climate change, it's really interesting because the way we approach complex issues, it's becoming more and more difficult for media outlets to speak to wider audiences. So they only speak to the audience that already agrees with them. So when they talk about climate change, they know they're talking to usually mostly liberal folks who already believe climate change is a problem, who are already convinced that this is a problem. And so the way they write and the way they communicate is very different from the way they would be writing if they were writing for an audience of skeptics. So when liberals talk about climate change, we think about that National Geographic cover, which is that polar bear on the ice cap, and he's all sad and lonely. And it's, you know, gotta save the polar bears. That polar bear over there is losing his habitat, et cetera, et cetera. Now, that single photo is sort of a trigger for liberals because we're already convinced it's a problem. So we see that polar bear and we say, oh my gosh, we have to save the polar bear. Um, but if you're writing to a more skeptic audience that still needs to be convinced that climate change is a problem, you need to actually talk about the data that you're looking at and contextualize that data. So a lot of climate change science is looking at temperatures rising for the past, let's say, 100 to 150 years for when we have really good data, right? But Obviously, climate change um, has been occurring for eons. So that's a broader context that isn't talked about. When we want to talk to conservatives, it's actually much more effective to talk to them about soil erosion because that's a, that affects our food supply. And soil erosion is something that farmers really understand because they're literally it's in the lives. soil. You know, and yeah. Exactly. It affects their livelihoods. We can talk about uh, the need for America to become a renewable energy industry leader, right? So we want to overtake China and be the global uh, superpower when it comes to renewable energy sources. That's a uh, convincing argument to conservatives. Another convincing argument would be to talk about the unique landscape that America has, right? To talk about preserving the uniqueness of the American landscape, to talk about our sort of natural monuments and natural history and our natural biodiversity and habitat. Because as you know, conservatives like to conserve, right? So there are all of these arguments that we could make that could actually persuade a great number of people, but that a lot of journalists don't make, A, because they simply don't know those people, so they don't know what's convincing to them, and then B, because their audience doesn't contain those people. Their audience mm -hmm. contains only people who already agree already with that. whatever they're about to write. So uh, when I speak to especially high school students and college students, I often ask, when was the last time you clicked on an article and learned something new? When was the last mm. time you clicked on an article and were surprised by what you read? Or you heard an interview and said, oh my gosh, I hadn't thought about that, right? So often we click on articles from a headline knowing exactly what it's going to say, at least the broad contours. So at that point, what value add are you getting, right? You already agree. You already know this information. Why not go read a source you know, don't normally read? The, the email I got from you guys, was it yesterday, about taking down the statues, mm -hmm. the various statues, was fascinating because it, it's like as a Democrat or, or as you know, a liberal, automatically it's take them all down, throw them in the water. And like right. reading, if you like, I actually want to talk about what some of these men did who actually fought for anti-slavery and... I, I was like, wow, no one's saying 
any of this. This information isn't anywhere. And I think what the problem is now, especially with social media and what's going on and what I've noticed, which is personally making me very nervous and upset, which is why I was venting on Instagram the other day, is why have we removed any sort of fucking room for actual dialogue? That the cornerstone of a scholar is critical thinking. How are you going to be a critical thinker who can have actual dialogue and a constructive conversation with someone who, and I, and I hate this, like have different beliefs. I think if you sat down every, any liberal and any fucking conservative in a room, they have the same wants in life. We want to have money. We want to work. We want to have healthy children. Obviously it gets very nuanced within um, each of those topics and how we get there, but we're all humans who want to survive. So why are we not working together to be constructive? Exactly. So we have the same goals ultimately. Every human wants to live and thrive. I think the statues example is so perfect because it really draws out what the problem is. So exactly what you said, liberals just say, take them down by default and conservatives say, keep them up by default, right? But if you look at each specific instance, there's actually a lot of agreement. So most people would agree that Confederate soldiers they don't deserve to be memorialized in the public space. Mm -hmm. And then the question is, okay, do we take it down or do we put it in a museum or whatever, right? Most people would agree that the um, abolitionist whose statue was brought down probably shouldn't have been brought down. Liberals just swept it under the rug because it's an inconvenient story. So Mm -hmm. when we talk about bias in the media, it's not just what's being covered and how it's being covered, but also what's not being covered, right? So the left just said, okay, that's collateral damage, whatever, it happens, and kind of swept it under the rug. Whereas the conservatives said, hey, hey, look at that statue, we should save that statue. And here's another statue that's part of the collateral damage you're not covering that we think is valuable. And because no one's talking, they're not having those conversations, which goes back to even cancel culture on the internet. It's just zero dialogue, you are wrong. Exactly. And I think there's this perverse idea that, oh, if we give these evil people a platform, we are legitimizing their viewpoint, et cetera, et cetera. Well, it's not that simple, right? I mean, look, no one's talking about legitimizing the KKK or Richard Spencer or whatever horrid viewpoint there is. Mm -hmm. But when we're talking about issues that really are in the gray area, right? Where do we draw the line when it comes to the statues? Is it only at Confederate soldiers? Is it at all slave owners? These are tough questions because history is always rewriting itself. So what was once acceptable 100 years ago, 200 years ago is obviously not accepted now. So how we think about these important figures in our history, whether it's they should have a statue, whether how they, how they should be written about in textbooks, these are complex conversations that can't be had, that frankly, can't be had on social media, right? There's only so much you can do with a 280 character tweet. But can we talk about how, how beautiful it is that you're an immigrant from another country and that you know so much about? <laughs> I mean, I'm like emotional about it because it makes me so sad how we always have these intense. I mean, my husband's treated like a garbage can for being Italian here all the time. Uh-huh. And so think about you know what I can't imagine. I mean, it's just so. You are such a beautiful example of America, and if we all oh, shut the gosh. fuck up and <laughs> you know under, it's not like all these people are coming to our country. First of all. Davide always laughs. He's like, when you guys were fucking fighting the Indians or the Native Americans here, we were like chilling, eating pizza. 
Like you guys, like, <laughs> oh, he's like, you're so new. So I don't know where this- Exactly, it's true. Our, our, we are a young country. He always talks about that. He's like, this is Native American land. This is not your land. So these people that we mm. see on the internet every day saying, go back to your country. Nobody's like, this, was, this isn't your country either. This mm. is a shared space. Unfortunately, mm. at the expense of many people who came before us. This is in a sh- like a shared space. So why are we not able to work together to make it a pleasant shared space for all of us? Because it seems like we're all getting more segregated. And especially what's happening lately on social media is the left is going so hard. And I'm watching people that I know in my family, especially who are very conservative, getting pushed more right because what's right, happening. Exactly. So, and I'm sitting here thinking like, I don't obviously agree with family members of mine that are conservative by any means or people that I grew up with. I think that if you, unfortunately, I'm so sorry, I'm going to isolate some of my listeners. I think that if you support Donald Trump as a human being, that you are a racist homophobe. <laughs> sorry. Well, sorry. So I, will, I will challenge you on that. I, I will challenge you because I think Donald Trump is such an interesting uh, phenomena that it's worth delving into that further, right? Mm -hmm. So many, many people on the right, and I won't say everybody, but many, many people on the right have no delusions about who he is. They have no delusions of the comments that he makes or all of, you know, his business dealings and other relationships that he's had. They don't think he's a saint. They're absolutely under no delusion that he is this perfect person. But I think it's important to dig deeper and say, why did they vote for him anyway? Mm -hmm. Why do they continue to support him anyway? And I think that's where the conversation gets really interesting. But it takes a certain kind of person to sort of be able to move past that, right? The fact that you are questioning your ideas, the fact that you are saying, okay, I do want to find conservative viewpoints unfortunately, less and less people are doing that these days. And it's because it's so much easier to hit like on a tweet Mm -hmm. that's making fun of the other side than Mm -hmm. it is to ask those deeper questions because that's time consuming. You know, we all just want to get back to Netflix. That there are many reasons why people voted for him. I also had a great conversation with one of my followers the other day who wrote to me saying, hey, you know, it was because of Donald Trump that my family's business was able to survive the last few mm. months. It was because of things that he has done. And I want to, I never assumed that I would be thankful to have him, but like we literally were going to go under without mm. certain things he implemented. I did not go deep into it and I should have, yeah. but I understand why people would want to vote for him. But I think the hard part is where do we draw our lines on like social decorum and grace. And by no means, I think having these two presidents that we've had back to back, we're like Obama being, you know, Mr. Cool Guy, the most charming man in the world doing all the right things outwardly. Well, are we talking about what he did in Yemen? Are we talking about what he did in the Middle East? Exactly. To say that Obama's a cool guy is great, but like he did a lot of really fucked up shit. In his President term. Obama <laughs> deported many more people than uh, President Bush did, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, Nobody talks about that. Exactly. And I'm, I'm pretty sure even now, overall, the number of deportations under President Obama were higher than under the Trump administration. That was true as of six months really? ago. Really? It wow. might still be true. So the nickname that President Obama had was deporter-in-chief. So that's what makes this also really hard for 
conservatives and liberals to discuss because we've had two complete extremes. Yes. And it's also not just their actions, but their words. And often there is a big disconnect with both of them. You know, um, it's I mean, President Trump hates on the media constantly. Right. He's just always ranting about the media. But he's actually taking fewer actions than I would say compared to President Obama, where he's actually President Obama went after journalists. uh, Well, his administration, I should say, excuse me. Um, You know, there were prosecutions, there were uh, wiretap tappings, and he did this all, you know, sort of under secrecy, whereas everything President Trump does is out in the open. So I think when we talk about media bias, right, every single action the Trump administration takes is under a tiny microscope and everything is being picked at, whereas President Obama and his administration, they did a lot of problematic things when it comes to freedom of the press that is not talked about. So that's where I start to see all of the biases that are coming up that uh, conservatives are rightly complaining about. Wild. And then everything just comes down to an Instagram comment. <laughs> right, exactly, right. So it's, it's, it's much faster to write a quick Insta post than it is to say, okay, here are all the things the Obama administration did and here are all the things the Trump mm-hmm. administration did and let's put a pro on this. Who wants to do that? Us, but nobody else, which is why we do it. <laughs> so you don't have to. Let's talk about the gender gap in news consumption because that blew my mind when we were talking about it the other day and I have not read this anywhere. Yes. So um, it was really funny when, you know, we are looking at our readership, we're nearing uh, almost 200,000 subscribers. Um, and most of it's been organic. I've, we've been very fortunate to have a lot of earned media to be on amazing podcasts such as yours, to have op-eds published, to give talks. And we're collecting all this data to say, okay, who is actually our consumer? And I was shocked to see that our readership is 65% male at one point. And I said, oh my God, what's happening? And I panicked and I said, how is that possible? And I ran around. And then uh, my friends in the media were like, oh, I mean, okay, that's a little high, but it's actually not that strange. Um, When it comes to quote unquote hard news, and we say hard news to depict it from quote unquote soft news, which is more sort of human interest pieces and Hollywood stories, et cetera, there is a gender gap in that men are much more likely to consume hard news than women. Um, There's this strange notion that somehow being feminine and caring about the world are incompatible. And it's partly because the media industry has been dominated by men uh, for, you know, forever. Mm -hmm. Um, Thankfully, that's changing now. And also partly the part of the politicians when they focus on, quote unquote, women's issues, right? So women's issues are seen as only reproductive health. So don't get me wrong. That's incredibly important. But guess what? We are half the population. So affordable housing is also a women's issue. Mm -hmm. The economy is also a women's issue, right? Tax reform is also a women's issue. So when we talk about women's issues, everything is a women's issue because we're literally taking up half the space in the world. Uh, When we talk about the gender gap in news consumption, it's partly the way things are marketed and sort of uh, highlighted for the the two genders, right? Um, And yes, I'm speaking extremely gender normatively right now. I'm sorry. It's it's just easier to speak in broad strokes. But there's this idea that somehow you can't get your nails done and talk about NATO at the same time, right? But my friends and I do. Like, why can't we? Who decided that that's not cool, that we only have to talk about boys when we're doing our nails? Mm -hmm. You know, 
I mean, men are chugging beers and talking about NATO. Is that, is that somehow more serious, right? There's this patriarchal notion that we have um, that I am working to dismantle. And I hope, uh, especially with all of the things that are happening right now, that um, your listeners can sort of uh, really distill that and say, hey, yeah, we should be reading the news and we should be sharing news sources with our girlfriends, even alongside Hollywood stories and whatnot. Mm-hmm. We and should be having side, those conversations exactly. at home with each other. I mean, I've had the hardest conversations lately. It's not just women who are being disadvantaged. You know, men want to talk about quote unquote soft news, right? They want to talk about mental health. They want to talk about, you know, emotional well-being and self-care and none of all of that, you know, wellness industry so much of that wellness industry is focused on women and not focused on the men who would probably spend a lot of money on yoga classes if only mm-hmm. it was you know targeted correctly. So I think there's a lot to learn about how we're marketing and we are trying to be cognizant of that ourselves and make sure that our advertising is speaking to everyone, not just a specific set of people. Yeah, which I'm sure must be an interesting vetting process. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> so... I think we should round this out by talking about, you know, clickbait. And here's the problem that I always see and is personally to me really upsetting is everyone demanding to listen to one another, everyone really wanting to be heard, everyone wanting um, equality. But when it, as soon as it comes to clickbait, especially within cancel culture, that's what we get excited to, yeah. to click on. We love yep. a fucking yep. shitty headline. We love it. Right. Jimmy Kimmel is the latest target. I honestly don't even know what he did. I, I just saw the headline. I didn't want to click on it because I didn't want to be part of the problem. Mm-hmm. I'm okay living in the dark about what he did. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's... I think that's important, right? Like there are times where I read through all my headlines before I click into them. And I think, especially because I look at, at my news in the morning, is this going to serve me? Like if, it's, if we know that Jimmy Kimmel, if the headline is that he's in trouble for wearing blackface 20 years ago, mm. great. Like that's fucked up. And this is happening to a lot of celebrities right now. Do I need to deep dive into this and tell him to go die? Right. No. What do I do? You just don't look at it. That's why exactly. I don't understand with like accounts to cancel girls on Instagram, on and on and on. If you don't like a brand or if you don't like the person who- Don't follow them. Brand, just don't buy the product. Because the yeah. problem is in my experience, which I know to be true for a fact, is people will tell me I'm a garbage can and need to go die and my clothes are horrible. But oh. I've seen them spend hundreds of dollars in one really? website all the time. It is constant. That is amazing. That's why the last few years I've been like, all of you online who are up in arms about all this shit, you're not actively living a life that is similar to your outward. It's all performative. It's a performance. They're performing for their audience. Look how woke I am. Look how socially conscious I am, et cetera. And you know, especially when I'm talking to, you know, large audiences, thank you for bringing this up. I always say we are the ones we've been waiting for. We can't expect the media to do better unless we demand better. And the way we demand is through our eyeballs, through our clicks, through our purchases. So we can't keep complaining about clickbait headlines if we continue to literally click on them, Mm -hmm. right? 
we have to seek out quality journalism. We have to seek out journalism from different types of media, from different perspectives. We have to support local news. And I cannot stress this enough. There's a study, there were multiple studies that have shown that when there's a drop in local news, three bad things happen. One, polarization increases because everything becomes national and national politics is more polarized than local politics. Mm -hmm. Two, uh, voter engagement goes down because there's not reminders for your local elections. There's less civic engagement. And then three, and this was especially fascinating, local government expenditures go up. When you don't have local reporters harassing the city council to mm -hmm. learn what each item in this local budget is, expenditures go up which was a fascinating thing that I would never have thought about, but it obviously it makes so much sense. And there have been recent scandals about, you know, city council members just taking advantage of no accountability, right? Um, the fourth estate is there to be accountable, to hold politicians accountable to the people. And when that disappears, local officials can basically do whatever they want, right? Give fat contracts to their friends, to their wives and husbands, what have you. So we have to be the ones that change that. We have to demand local news, quality news. We have to go out and vote and go out and protest and go out and run for office. We're not going to be able to make substantive change if we're only on our phones. No, and that's what I have been advocating for so hard the last few weeks. I keep saying, if you want things to change, the unsexy thing is to yeah. find your local government Ask yes. what their budgets are. See who city council members are. Fucking run for city council if you want to, if you really want yes. to make change. And I don't know how we're going to do this. And it's something that is... And people underestimate how out. much... People underestimate how much impact you can have at the local level because local officials don't hear from their constituents often. Never. So if 10 people show up they will listen, mm -hmm. right? Like all of the town hall meetings that happen all across the country, it's usually five to 10, frankly, senior citizens who are there, who are retired, who have a lot of free time, right? Yes. The young people don't show up to town hall meetings and then they complain that politicians don't care about young people. Well, yeah, of course they don't. You don't show up. No, so the only thing up, people are doing online is continuing to spread very exactly. intense information and signing petitions. And that's great. We should be calling and demanding that, that cops who need to get arrested, get arrested and tried 100%. That's great. We need to do that as a large, as a country. But there's no way we're going to make any sort of changes unless someone in each town, and this is what I was saying, I want to try to figure out, like, how mm. could I start some sort of program where I say, hey, like, Let's get one representative, one cool young kid in every town that's going to be responsible for, for spreading information about who our next officials could possibly be, what they want, what they care about, all the budgets. Like, I, I think we need like a screenshotable information hmm. that you can take to the booths with you that you yeah. know, hey, and by the way, don't just vote for somebody with a D next to their name. Because you don't know what their exactly. policies are. You don't know how that's going to affect you. Especially at the local level. You know, there's someone in the Bronx who's running as a Democrat who has said he may vote for Trump, for example. This is the Bronx. Um, so it's it's definitely tricky. And, you know, last time we spoke, I mentioned, oh, there's Ballotpedia.org, BallotReady.org, Vote411, VoteSmart.org. But none of them are pretty, frankly. Um, none of them are user-friendly. So, um, you know, we talk about, the evils of tech or whatever, but 
tech, the, the tech industry could actually do a lot of really simple things to help the democratic process, right? Stop working at Facebook. Stop being part of the problem. Come join these tiny, tiny bootstrap nonprofit organizations mm-hmm. that are actually trying to make a real difference. Mm-hmm. I have a, a friend who um, has worked on multiple campaigns and ended up, you know, whatever, he's an amazing entrepreneur and just sold a company. And so his next move, having, uh, you know, some money in his bank account is to help with our next round of political campaigns. So, oh, that's amazing. Which is really cool. But what he was organized this group of people that he's working with, because when they sat down and talked about how to make a real impact and how to really share information, they did their own deep dive that came out with wild numbers, including that during the last presidential campaign, Donald Trump had 3 million different ads. There were three mm-hmm. million different forms of content and Hillary Clinton had 160,000. Yep. That sounds about right. What? <laughs> like, hello. And if we want to talk about, you know, I think, oh, especially a lot of liberals always assume oh, well, middle America is going to vote for that person. Or, you know, there's all these people in the middle, like dismissing the people who own farms that provide us our own food. So why are we not saying to quote unquote middle America? And listen, I don't think everyone is capable of getting along. If there are people who grow up extremely conservative, I don't think it's our job to get in their faces and tell them that what they think is fucked up. I think it makes it worse. Right, right. Right? I mean, we're never going to convince anyone um, of everything we want, but we can find common ground. We can work, at, especially when we talk about topics broadly in broad strokes, we're never going to find agreement, right? So don't talk about statues as a whole. Talk about this specific statue in this town, right? Mm-hmm. Then you start to have a real conversation. If you go to a local town hall meeting virtually these days, because we want everybody to be safe, you can say, okay, let's talk about statue one, then statue two, and then statue three, and then come to a democratic solution that everyone can live with but until you should apply to everything agree always make sweeping judgments about large groups of people constantly and everyone every situation every person is so nuanced yes it comes down to actually having to have conversation rather than sweeping arguments that don't really benefit anybody i mean i'll just give one quick example when the left, and I, and I consider myself part of the left, part of the progressive liberal movement, talks about, you know, broad sweeping changes to criminal justice reform, right? Well, that was the crime bill in 1994. It was bipartisan and it had strong support. And look how that turned out, right? Mm-hmm. So when we talk about big systematic changes, there will always be unforeseen consequences that we can't see. And that's always the conservative argument that's, you know, hey, before we enact 50 different things, why don't we start with four or five and 10 and see where that goes? And I think there's so much value to that. Again, because even if you can't get anyone to agree on the 50, you can get a significant number of people to agree on 10, right? So universal background checks for guns, for example, has widespread support. I think the trickier question is, there are issues, smaller issues that the majority of American public agrees on. Why aren't those things being implemented? And that's a whole different conversation about how our politics is dysfunctional, but one topic at a time. (laughs) (laughs) I know it's so hard because every topic leads to another topic and then you're, and then then you get overwhelmed. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Yes. Well, thank you so 
much for this. I know this is already a lot of information for people to digest. <laughs> I speak quickly. I'm sorry. You no, can it's good. So do anytime. I. And, but I think what <laughs> yes. you're doing is one of the most important things and, and such a relief to someone my age who knows that there needs to be incredible changes, who knows that we live in a country full of clickbait, who knows how divided we are. Mm. You're doing the actual work that nobody else wants to do to allow us to live in like a truly democratic system. So thank you so much for that. Thank you. And I will say staying up till four or 5 a.m., you know, chugging Coke and uh, reading, you know, <laughs> thousands of articles on a topic is, is not the most glamorous work, but we love it. And we, we genuinely think it will help bridge the divide someday. Good. Can you tell everyone where <laughs> to find you? Yes, I can. So you can find us at theflipside.io, T-H-E, flipside, theflipside.io. You can subscribe. Um, my email is just A-N-N-A-F-I, Anafi, at theflipside.io. So uh, send me questions, uh, follow us on Insta, Twitter, all that good stuff. Good. Thank you so much for having me. This Thank so you much so much. And that, ladies and gentlemen, concludes this week's episode of Everything is the Best. I hope you enjoyed it. Please rate, review, subscribe, all that stuff. Maybe leave a comment. But remember, shitty comments are for shitty people. Go ahead and follow me on Instagram at Pia Barangini. And I hope you have a fabulous, fabulous rest of your day. Love you. Ciao.